subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Thanks to Mindbloom for supporting our podcast. It's time to enter the next chapter in mental health and well-being. Let Mindbloom guide you. Mindbloom is offering our listeners $100 off your first six-session program when you sign up at mindbloom.com Bigfoot and use promo code Bigfoot at checkout. Be sure to type the promo code Bigfoot with all lowercase letters. Hey, Bobo, this is a special episode, number 200. Yep, big two oh oh. Yeah, that's that's not bad. It's not bad. Time flies, and at the same time, it kind of drags on. So um, it's kind of a little bit of both here. But we have a really cool program today. But before we start that, Bobs, you have anything you want to share with the audience? Anything cool going on? Anything squatchy in your environment? Um, possibly. I'm going to find out here pretty quick. Anything you can talk about, or should we wait? I'm just going to wait until I, it's for sure. Probably a wise move. I am going up on the, uh, I think I told you I'm going on that, looking for those Bigfoot graves in Alaska with some natives. Yeah, you did mention it. Has that, has, uh, that ball been moved down court at all? Yeah. We're going to interview Dr. Meldrum. He confirmed for that. Okay. Very good. So that, that's forward movement. Uh-huh. I would say so. Very good. And when is that? What month? Uh, next month. Next month, March. All right. We have to schedule some podcasts around that. Oh, no, we don't. That's the interview with Jeff. We don't go up there until August. Oh, okay. oh, August. Gosh, you have some time there. Alaska's August. Jeff's interviews in March. I see. Well, cool. Cool. So your film projects are being moved forward. Excellent. Yeah, not much happening here. Uh, snow kind of shut me out of the area, so I haven't been up in this spot. Um, although another guy got up there right before the snow happened, and he pulled another footprint. Really? Yeah. Uh, and it was a smaller of the two individuals, um, which is kind of cool. That's way cool. Waiting for the snow to melt so I can get back up there. We had this big flurry, and it's going to be a cold week, apparently. But when the snow melts, I will be up there once or twice a week. And uh, I imagine most of the NABC guys will be as well. Uh, it's kind of an interesting area. But anyway, enough about that. We have something way cooler going on today. We have brought back Dr. Jeff Meldrum for our 200th episode. He was our guest on our 100th episode. So we figured every 100 episodes, we can subject uh, Dr. Meldrum to Cliff and Bobo for an hour or so. Um, So Jeff, thank you very, very much for coming back for our second 100th episode, our 200th episode. We really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm honored. I'm privileged. Yeah. Thank you very much for the invitation. Hey, Jeff. Cool. Well, um, you know, I, I've got a whole list of questions and things we can talk about. And um, if there's anything you want to talk about, of course, we want you to jump in too. But, um, you know, you're, you've become the scientific figurehead in a lot of ways, in the same way that Dr. Krantz was for so long. And, and um, you knew Dr. Krantz, of course, but he was, wasn't he as an osteologist? Wasn't his specialty bones? He was a classic physical anthropologist. And so it, uh, that, that included, um, a number of um, disciplines that he uh, published in regularly. He was a paleoanthropologist, so he he um, worked with the uh, both the, the discovery of and, and identification and analysis of fossil hominin um, bones, skeletal remains, and so um, also as a as a classical physical anthropologist. I'm sure he did teach the human osteology course. 
which is an in-depth treatment of, of the skeletal system of the human species and uh, for both uh, evolutionary but also archaeological objectives. Uh, he was also very talented anatomist and uh, applied that talent to uh, forensic reconstructions of crania from from uh, you know partial remains. So his Gigantopithecus skull is an example of that. He also did you know the only kind of working model of what Meganthropus might have looked like based on its uh, very large and robust mandible remains. So ba- based on the correlation of, of uh, form and function, he could take a few bits and, and uh, estimate what the remainder of the skull may have looked like. Um, and uh, I think he, you know, exhibited some real talent and insight in, in that respect. So he was, he was kind of a Renaissance man in, in many ways. Yeah, almost like a generalist in a way, it sounds like. Uh, and I, the reason I thought he was an osteologist is because several of the uh, people I've met of my own uh, age group who took classes um, from him apparently all took osteology classes. Sure. That's, that's a pretty standard fare in, a, in an anthropological curriculum, yeah. Yeah. Now, now, um, you brought up meganthropus, of course, and I want to touch base on that in a little while. But um, now, contrast that with your own field of study, um, because you know, Doctor Krantz really laid a foundation for all scientists who are going to come after him. And right now, you're standing on that shoulder, on those set of shoulders. Um, but you've been able to been able to expand on what Doctor Krantz did because of your own um, specified uh, study area. So, uh, how how do you differ? Exactly. Well, I I came at physical anthropology from a slightly different uh, perspective. Uh, at the time I entered into graduate school, there was rather a, a glut of anthropologists, and uh, or at least a, a maybe a better way to say it was a dearth of openings for employment and uh, at, at, in academic positions. And so one an alternate pathway, instead of the the classical anthropological degree that that included the disciplines, the subdisciplines of, you know, archaeology, social, cultural, linguistics, and physical. I instead was uh, a cohort at a an institution where physical anthropologists had been recruited into departments of anatomy at medical schools to teach human gross anatomy in the health professions programs in medical school physical therapy school, and so forth. And so my degree was actually in anatomical sciences. So rather than having, with an emphasis, with an emphasis in physical anthropology, so rather than having the classic four-subdiscipline anthropological training, which which would really better suit me for employment in, a, in an anthropology department, I got this degree, which uh, then afforded me the opportunity to teach uh, human gross anatomy, regional gross anatomy at the graduate level in medical schools. And, um, and there, like I said, there were programs like that that were popping up in various places. And uh, SUNY Stony Brook was one, Duke was one, uh, where I did a postdoc, and, and others, Johns Hopkins, uh, UCLA, and other schools. But anyway, so it was a little different. So I, I basically had the first two years of, of medical school 
uh, elbow to elbow with 120 medical students. <laughs> you know, the, the, I think there were six of us in my cohort uh, of uh, anthropology students. And um, when then, uh, subsequently, as those medical students would go into more and more clinical courses, we would go into um, classes in uh, evolutionary biology, in osteology, in comparative primate anatomy, and so forth. And um, so more of the basic sciences that uh, touched on anthropology and ecology and evolution. And so um, it was a great experience. I mean, it was really, um, it was a tough program, though. I mean, of the six, I think only two of us had completed the program. <laughs> was it around this time that you became interested in bipedalism and uh, the anatomy of feet? Or uh, it sounds, at some point or another, you kind of zeroed in on those particular aspects. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, that's what, what motivated me to go to this particular program. Um, the, the faculty there had published this uh, seminal work called um, The Locomotor Anatomy of Australopithecus Afarensis that was published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. And it was just a, a quite e exhaustive treatment of the skeletal remains attributed to this early uh, bipedal hominin. And it was that... Uh, you know, that, that latent interest in bipedalism, which was probably initially seeded by the interest in Bigfoot, you know, another bipedal primate, that, that motivated me to pursue that. And, uh, you know, as, as you go along, your opportunities uh, cross your path that, um, that afford the chance to kind of branch out a little bit and do some different things as well. And so, I mean, along the way, for example, I got um, interested in locomotor behavior in primates, both living and fossil, much more broadly than just human bipedalism. Um, and actually, and, and I, I would note that it's a kind of a, a, a tight, uh, not a closed shop, but it's a, it's a narrow niche because of the rarity of hominin fossils. So really, unless your professor was actually had access to the to the fossil sites and was participating in the discovery of new material you rarely had the chance to do any of the initial examination analysis and so forth study of those fossils so i had to kind of come at bipedalism from from the side door you know through through the mud room and back <laughs> into the up the hallway. And so I, I was actually, uh, my doctoral dissertation was on terrestrial adaptations in, in, in monkeys, in African monkeys, and uh, looking at adaptations to terrestrial quadrupedalism. And then I could compare and contrast that from, a, you know, from a more um, theoretical, practical perspective with bipedalism. And, uh, and it was it was actually a, a very effective way because those features that were held in common were those that were common to walking on the ground versus clamoring and climbing in the trees, and then those that were distinctive between bipeds and quadrupeds were those features that were were unique to the adaptations for walking on two legs. So 
anyway, so along the way, I dabbled in, I got interested in South American primate evolution because of, the, again, the opportunity of working with my mentor in the field. And then on another occasion, when I was doing a postdoc at uh, Duke, uh, the opportunity to dabble in some uh, DNA sequencing and, and approaching the reconstruction of the phylogeny or family tree um, of, uh, in this case, South American monkeys uh, by way of looking at the genes in living primates was, was another. I mean, that was a, a very different departure for me, but one, I wasn't going to say no to my mentor, and two, it was a great opportunity to, to uh, learn a technique that, uh, as it turns out, I didn't end up pursuing that further, but it placed me in a very good position to, from a more informed um, stance, be able to evaluate the publications that, of the studies that others were doing um, in an area that was still of, of uh, real interest to me, that was the evolution of South American primates as an adaptive radiation. So, um, you know, principles of, of evolutionary biology that have been applicable to a variety of different species and different uh, continents and so on. So it's all, uh, it's all good. So since you specialize somewhat in uh, locomotor adaptations and primates in general, that would explain why maybe you picked up the idea of the midfoot flexibility and Krantz noticed it, but didn't put the the terms on it per se, I think. Right. Well, and and he he didn't characterize the features uh, correctly. And uh, and that was, you know, a bit of a, a... a misdirection, unfortunately. But if you look in his book, Bigfoot Prints, or, or the evidence of Bigfoot and Sasquatch with this, the renamed second edition, you know, there's a diagram in there where he tries to account for that mid-tarsal pressure ridge. He didn't, of course, he didn't recognize it as a mid-tarsal pressure ridge. He, he recognized it as a pressure ridge, but tried to explain it as, you know, a push off from the forefoot of a very flat uh, a, a very flat foot, but but he did not um, uh, eliminate the um, the existence of an arch entirely. He he, and and this is why he ha- had uh, hypothesized that the f- toes were very short. You know, our our toes have shortened remarkably by comparison to um, chimpanzees and gorillas, and uh, even in comparison to the intermediate state, the intermediate lengths found in some early bipedal hominins like the Australopithecines, which still had rather long and somewhat curved pedal digits, foot digits of their feet, toes. <laughs> hey, Jeff, excuse me. Uh, what about those tribes that have never worn shoes? And you see those guys with those big, gnarly, you know, spread feet and toes? Yeah. They still have, have very healthy arches, though. I mean, that toe length, you said like that toe length got shorter. No, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's, they, they appear to be a bit longer because they are a little more extended and splayed, perhaps, uh, whereas our toes are so compressed from shoe wear. And, and, you know, typically most modern shoe wearing humans, their little toe is, is curled on its side. Now, thankfully, shoe wear these days is uh, is more sensible than it was even 50 years ago you know the pointy showed uh, toed dress shoes and so forth very confining uh footwear but uh, and, and even you know cowboy boots uh, 
there's a little bit of accommodation there because the boot that has a pointed toe is usually a longer toe. I mean, it was a longer toe so you could keep it in your stirrup, basically, was the strategy. <laughs> Nowadays, it, that, uh, you know, these, these fancy, fashionable dress shoes have uh, really long toes and the, the pointed uh, toes of the shoe the pointed tips of which are extend out beyond. And so they don't, you know, the toes aren't crushed into that little conical tip, but, but nevertheless, no, it, you know, it was interesting because when, when the Victorian era physical anthropologists struck out to, to study all the various ethnic diversity that was out there, they thought that they would find these poor um, unshod native tribes would uh, display very uh, poor foot hygiene, foot uh, conditions, that they would have fallen arches, that they would have all kinds of ailments and of the joints and so forth, because they didn't have the benefit of Western uh, supportive footwear. And of course, what they found was just the opposite, that the human foot responded very well and, and the arches were healthy and they were high the toes were splayed, the pads pointed down towards the ground like they were supposed to. They, there were very uh, much fewer foot ailments amongst these, uh, these uh, barefoot tribal peoples than there were amongst the Western Europeans. So in any case, so Grover was, his, his argument was that Sasquatch had even shorter toes, which kind of fed into this image that, that was the result of... Uh, uh, the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film site footprint cast that, that where the toes look kind of like peas in the pod. This is why, um, uh, not to digress too far, but this is why Rene DeHinden has such trouble with the tracks from the blues is because these individuals had sometimes less sole pad extending up under the toes as is a variable trait in human populations as well. And so the toes, in Rene's words, looked like sausages. And, and, and he you know, used that as a very disparaging description, these fake sausage toes. Nobody likes a sausage party. That's right, I guess. A bunch of Vienna sausages. Um, when Grover modeled the, the human or the Sasquatch foot, then he envisioned uh, with even greater mass, there would be more bending stresses on these toes as they walked and pushed off. And so the toes would naturally be even shorter than in the human foot relative to foot length. And that's because he was using the human foot model of pushing off at the heads of the metatarsals and the toes as opposed to the entire four part of the foot. Exactly, exactly. You know, and so when this first, you know, first it kind of came to mind as I was looking at some of these Blue Mountain tracks, which had fairly long toes and the footprints that i examined at five points uh, I've, i have drawn attention to that one example where the toes have curled remarkably as they flexed gripping the mud as it slid with mud extruding up between the toes but you get the profile of the first and second toe and that little toe on that uh, 14 and a half inch ish foot is as long as my pinky finger and that's pretty you know so imagine toes on that foot that are as long as my fingers on my hand and combine that with uh, you know the musculature of the lower extremity and something as big as 
as this creature probably was. And that's a, that's a powerful grasping prehensile foot. So, um, so then the other thing that, that kind of, uh, uh, got it going was, uh, there were two other things. One was looking at the Bosberg cripple foot because, you know, Grover had actually attempted to do a skeletal reconstruction or inferential reconstruction, outlining on that diagram and on and actually etching on the physical cast his interpretation of the, of the uh, foot. And he had the toes very short. And, um, but, but as I looked at more details of, of the uh, flexion creases and so forth and where the joints would be based on the contours of the outline of the foot, it didn't work. It didn't work. You had to have a toe that was much, much longer. And then that combined with those individuals, um, particularly some of the examples on the Blue Creek Mountain Trackway that had a very uh, decided flexion crease across the ball of the foot, this split ball that has gotten you know, various. I've, I've actually got this old diagram that was drawn by Ivan Sanderson, where he tried to interpret the, and I should publish it as a, just a, a short um, article because it's of such interesting historical significance, I think, as these uh, uh, investigators tried to grapple with this, uh, this otherwise inexplicable anatomical characteristic. But I mean, if you look at your own, at the palm of your hand, you have, and you, and you flex your fingers just a little bit at the knuckle, you see it throws up a crease across the palm of your hand where the tissue of the palm extends beyond that joint up under the uh, proximal phalanges, the first bones in your fingers. Well, in the Sasquatch tracks, as well as in human footprints as well, human feet, there's evidence of that of an extension of that sole pad to varying degrees up underneath that um, first bone. In some individuals, it goes almost up to that first interphalangeal joint. Well, when those toes flex, then they create a crease right across the, the sole um, at the mid ball, at the head's of the metatarsals as they join the digits, where your knuckles, the corresponding uh, position of where your knuckles are in your in your hand. So when the toes flex, it throws up a crease just like that. And in fact, if you go and look at your birth certificate, if you have an inked footprint, you'll find that you, like almost every human baby, has that flexion crease on its foot when they're born. But as the arch develops, as, as the infant starts to walk, that sole pad fills out some more with more connective tissue and less baby fat, and you get a, an elaboration of the connective tissue under the ball of the foot at that metatarsal phalangeal joint, and it fills out. And so in most people, it pretty much disappears. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. There's no quick fix for anxiety and depression. It's not finding a new therapist or starting an exercise routine, not more in regular meditation or a better diet. If you haven't figured it out yet, life healing and becoming a better version of yourself is a process. It doesn't stop. You don't magically arrive. 
But sometimes you need something to unlock your brain, a new way of thinking about and seeing the world. Maybe that thing is guided ketamine therapy from MindBloom. In fact, Dan, a sales engineer and real MindBloom customer and believer, says, MindBloom has helped me take back control of my life. I feel free. And you, too, can feel that freedom. MindBloom is the leader in at-home ketamine therapy, offering a combination of science-backed medicine with clinician and guide support for people looking to improve their mental health and well-being. MindBloom connects patients to licensed psychiatric clinicians to help them achieve better outcomes with lower costs, greater convenience, and an artfully crafted experience. To begin, take MindBloom's online assessment to determine if MindBloom is right for you. If approved, you'll schedule a video consult with a licensed clinician where you'll discuss your goals and expectations for mental health treatment. MindBloom will send you a kit in the mail complete with medicine, treatment materials, and tips for getting the most out of your experience. After only two sessions, 87% of MindBloom clients reported improvements in depression and 85% reported improvements in anxiety. It's time to enter the next chapter in mental health and well-being. Let MindBloom guide you. Right now, MindBloom is offering our listeners $100 off your first six-session program when you sign up at mindbloom.com Bigfoot and use promo code Bigfoot at checkout. Go to mindbloom.com Bigfoot, promo code Bigfoot, for $100 off your first six-session program today. That's mindbloom.com Bigfoot, promo code Bigfoot. Be sure to type the promo code Bigfoot with all lowercase letters. God, I was in a store or something. I don't remember where I was standing next to this guy or whatever. And I think we exchanged a few words or whatever. And I noticed that he had a tattoo of these two feet on his arms. And I, and I looked at him and go, well, those aren't human. Those are clearly. And I said, so you're into Sasquatches? And he goes, no, those are my infants. Those are my baby's feet. And he, he wasn't he wasn't super happy with me. And he didn't <laughs> exchange many more words after that either. So, but um, to, to your point, though, <laughs> And actually, Dr. Krantz made that same point in this book, now that I'm thinking of it. About the, the split ball? No, no, about specifically how uh, infant human feet uh, probably more strongly resemble Sasquatch feet. Yes, yes. I think there he was talking about the, the proportions, too, particularly. Uh, yeah. I'll have to go back and look. It's been a long time since I've read that. And every time I go back and reread, I, I discover something else he said that I've <laughs> since forgotten. But David Ellis's. Um Baby footprint, you you authenticated that, right, Jeff? Well, I I I would never claim to authenticate, but I mean, it. I'm impressed uh, foremost by the huge heel. It's got an enormous heel and and well developed heel pad already, which is not typical of a of a most human babies, and so that that seems quite interesting uh, uh, in itself. So. I think there's a really good possibility. Yeah, that's a good example. We have others in, in the collection. I have some of the, the little feet um, that um, uh, Paul Freeman um, investigated uh, that were, uh, well, now, now the provenience is a little unclear to me because I, I originally thought that it was at, the, at D-Duck Springs and, and was found just, just prior to the shooting of that uh, footage there. But now I'm, told to know it was a different it was an earlier segment that's a different one yeah in fact um that that footage right before the most common version of the freeman footage is out now that shows those footprints in the ground that you're referring to um 
uh, I've, uh, su- I believe I've successfully identified those as those same um, juvenile prints that you're speaking of that were cast on Gifford Peak, I believe it's called. Um, Gifford Peak uh, in the previous April, if I remember correctly, um, by the shape of the casts in the ground drawing, you know, with the the the, the round. The, I, I looking looking at the copies that I have, you can identify them as oh, those are the same individuals. Those are the actually not that those are the same casts. So that was actually from Gifford Peak, the previous in ninety two, I think in April, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay, all right. Well, that's good to know because with all the, uh, you know, with all the discussion about the subject of the Freeman video scooping up an infant and uh, in, in the parting shots there, I've, I had often wondered if, if those were the tracks of the infant uh, that he had just uh, taken note of prior to going around to the other side of the, of the uh, pond there, but definitely could be, but those, the, the videos from a few months earlier. So, right. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that's when I saw that video and realized uh, there that they were that he had taken casts uh, that was the first thing I did is it got the cast out and compared them to the video and you're, you're absolutely right they they are in fact from that sequence which is always nice to to establish you know you, to have documentation of the footprints in the ground and as well as the casts uh, resulting casts so well, speaking of uh, anatomy, I thought I thought we could go down a couple other rabbit holes here. Um, let, let's talk about handprints for a minute. And uh, Sa- Sasquatch handprints, of course, are different than human or Sasquatch hands are different than humans in a lot of ways. Shorter, stubbier looking fingers because the webbing is extended. The thumb is in a different position. It doesn't flex across the palm like ours. It goes more directly into the ground. Um, because of these differences, what uh, behavioral differences can we infer that's a great point because um, you know this often comes up when people are suggesting that uh, that the sasquatch are extremely intelligent you know they must be in order to avoid us and then of course there are others who appeal to other types of experiences to suggest that there's something else going on that uh, would indicate a higher level of, of mental ability if not human but um but they're not quote just apes well you know let, let's since you opened the intelligence thing and we're going to be talking about the hands let's also throw in the cranium size and shape into this discussion so we can have a more well-rounded discussion about this please okay well um in, in that regard uh not being privy to uh first-hand visual observations of, of uh Sasquatch cranial proportions. You know, I can't say a lot, but I've come to a point where I'm absolutely convinced about the credibility of the Patterson-Gimlin film. And as such, that is admittedly a sample of one, but nevertheless, it is a Sasquatch. And what can we learn from looking at it? And uh, one of the things that's just uh, blows me away is when you take a robust australopithecine like Paranthropus, Paranthropus boisei, which existed in East Africa, oh, about uh, you know, 1.8 million to about 800,000 years ago, in the known fossil record anyway. And it stood about five to five and a half feet tall. It uh, was, was robust. Uh, when we say robust australopithecines, we're talking about their facial cranial adaptations, these heavy jaws, extremely enlarged molars and premolars, and 
reduced canines for a more side, freeing up a side to side, what they call the phase two of the chewing cycle, the grinding aspect <clears throat> with very, very thick enamel and uh, very puffy, um, rounded cusps and crests on the teeth. So uh, indicating indicative of a diet of, of very tough and very hard items. Okay, so anyway, um, if you take the, we, we have remarkably complete examples of uh, crania of this species, and you take one of those and just scale it to the same absolute size as uh, Patty and put it up next to her bust, and sure enough, every single uh, bony landmark from the top of the head to the receding chin on the jaw uh, lines up. Now, you know, that's, that's no small, uh, point because the, you know, the facial proportions on this thing, this, uh, robust Australopithecine are really remarkable. They are an extreme specialization for this, um, what we call a durophagous diet. Duro meaning, as you might expect, like from durable, a very tough, unyielding, diet. And so, you know, some, some have compared these robust australopithecines to Cuisinart's. They can, you know, really grind up and handle all kinds of food items. And, and so it's, it's an extreme um, uh, adaptation with very deep jaws, with very flaring uh, angles to the, to the mandible, um, a very prominent cheekbones that, that flare forward and, and wide to provide attachment for the chewing muscles on the side, the masseter muscles, it even has a bit of a crest on its skull for increased attachment of the anterior fibers of the temporalis muscle, which uh, is the, the second uh, of the two large, very large principal chewing muscles, the temporalis and the masseter. Anyway, so point for point, I mean, it's not just a, a, a queer coincidence, I mean, that correlation suggests that the Sasquatch has a similar type of diet and has those same extreme craniofacial adaptations. Yeah, because the anatomy reflects behavior in some way. I mean, yeah, it has to, of course. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, sometimes there are lags. Sometimes there are things that aren't really tightly correlated with the current behavior, but it's pretty lockstep. I mean, that, this is how paleoanthropologists go about reconstructing the anatomy and behavior, infer behavior, for these extinct species is by drawing analogy to the same correlations that exist in other living species. And uh, so one of the interesting correlations to this, as I mentioned, the reduced canines that allows that side-to-side -side grinding. And isn't it interesting that the most credible sightings of Sasquatch where the observer has been privileged to see the teeth from a gaping smile or an open mouth, there's usually an absence of projecting canines like you would see in a bear or in a gorilla or an orangutan, you know. And so that correlates with the uh, you know the fact that 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 most witnesses who do see the teeth um, comment on the squared off human like appearance of the teeth without fang like canines projecting 
that is exactly the anatomy that would be correlated with the facial skeletal adaptations and proportions that that uh, are seem to be uh, present. So that's interesting. So in the same way, we go from that then say to the tools. Oh, well, I guess we were we were talking about uh, uh, to get off on a, a different branch. We were talking about the um, intelligence, and so if you t- if you do that same correlation, that same alignment of the skull, it it is it, uh, the uh, correlation is is valid not only for the facial skeleton but for the cranium as well that houses the brain, and rather than having a a, a massive globular spherical um, uh, cranium to accommodate a human proportioned brain. It looks just like the robust australopithecine in that regard as well. And these robust australopithecines were barely, you know, bipedal gorillas or chimps in, in, in uh, that regard. Their brain was maybe 50 cubic centimeters, cc's, um, bigger than, than that for a chimpanzee. So, it, you know, Sasquatch would have an absolutely larger cranium because of its more gigantic size but nevertheless the proportion of brain to body mass would be the same the encephalization quotient you know where you when you take a ratio of brain size to body mass would be on par with that of the known great apes or early hominins like uh, the robust australopithecines were which were just you know a half step half notch greater so then go back to the hand question again, and you pointed out some of the distinctions. I mean, the limited record we have of hand prints and casts thereof seem to consistently indicate a hand that lacks the adaptations associated with opposability, with that uh, potential for fine precision grip like you use when you hold a, a, a pin or pick up a a needle, you know, um, that requires the action of opposition, bringing the pads of the thumb in direct opposition to the pads of the other digits, particularly the index finger, obviously. Now, those movements, those fine, finely controlled movements, uh, have selected for specializations of the muscles at the base of the thumb which give that thumb kind of a drumstick-looking appearance. Um, those, that's called the thenar pad or the thenar muscles. And that feature seems to be uniformly absent from the Sasquatch. And in fact, instead of the thumb being, being uh, um, set at a 90-degree rotation to the other digits, so if you look at your hand right now, you flex your fingers, they cross your palm, but your thumb is facing 90 degrees across your palm. So when you flex your fingers, it doesn't, or flex your thumb, it does not move in the same orientation that your other fingers does. It crosses over the palm at, at a right angle. And, and so that, that set sort of predisposes the thumb for this opposition positioning. Well, the Sasquatch thumb, much more like an ape, gorilla, or chimp, uh, the thumb isn't rotated nearly so much. And so when it when the thumb flexes, it, it really moves in parallel to the other digits. And since it doesn't have the adaptations for that precision grip, you'll, you'll notice a flattening of the palm 
and uh, a lack of the enlargement of that drumstick appearance, those thenar muscles. Now, isn't it interesting? Because the, the hand lacks the very features that we associate with precision grip, with fine grip, which we um, infer as essential to the evolution of tool use, of the manufacture of stone tools, for example, or other manual activities associated with uh, other sorts of tool use, with the use of needle and thread or, uh, you know, awls or scrapers. Well, scrapers are more power grip. And the correlation being is witnesses don't see Sasquatch doing or uh, doing those types of behaviors or utilizing those tools, nor do we find an archaeological record in North America that is attributed to, to Sasquatch. I mean, they're certainly not making the arrowhead points um, that we find uh, um, in Native American uh, as a result of Native American activities. So it's just, it's really, it's, it's, it's hard to convey in, in a brief, uh, you know, expose the, the depth of correlation and consistency that, that is present here. When, when you ask the right questions and look for the right evidence, the, um, the things are remarkably coherent and, and have, uh, you know, uh, provide examples that span at least a half a century and and many from a time when a lot of these types of things were only uh, in their early stages of understanding or development in, in the thinking of anthropologists of the time. And yet someone uh, allegedly hoaxed all these things, you know, left this trail of breadcrumbs that is um, so remarkably coherent, but actually has anticipated what we now understand. Yeah, well, then I guess we're underestimating the hoaxers having such foresight into anthropological models of the future. Right, exactly. It's just, I mean, that this is what really, th this way of thinking, in addition to so much other um, uh, aspects of the evidence, but this way of thinking is what uh, absolutely converted me, convinced me, if you will, convinced me, a better word, I guess, uh, of the Patterson-Gimlin film. When you look at it and break it down, some of the odd combinations of traits that actually anticipated current conventional wisdom, but which at the time, in 1967, were counterintuitive to what was considered conventional wisdom. Uh, and uh, at, at, the, at the risk of being redundant, but it's such a prime example that it bears repetition, the writings of uh, John Napier, who was a a uh, bona fide primatologist and anatomist. He was a physician and a trained anatomist. He, uh, and, and it's interesting that it's those, isn't it, since we started off talking about anatomy, that tend to have a more open mind to some of that anatomical evidence. I guess it comes through the appreciation of the significance of that evidence due to the training and experience. But Napier um, was very focused on the footprints and and, and in his book, uh, which, you know, had a lot of negative tones uh, or uh, observations, he still, uh, the, the final bottom line was he was convinced there was something out there, there that Sasquatch, um, something was leaving footprints, and, and therefore Sasquatch must exist. What ex exactly it was, he was uh, unable to uh, conclusively state. But when it came to the Patterson-Gimlin film, he was quite negative. Um, 
not quite negative. He 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 had a negative opinion. Uh, uh, he did not. He could not endorse it, and yet he was forthright enough to acknowledge he really couldn't offer a good rationale for that rejection. But he said when he he saw that figure on the film. From the waist up, it looked essentially like an ape, and yet from the waist down, it had long legs like a, a human uh, or a hominin, and uh, a late hominin. And he said he just could not conceive of such a mosaic, such a hybrid of structure occurring in nature. Um, because the, so many anthropologists of that time, it was kind of a all or none that the human condition just emerged in uh, in its complete uh, perfected form <laughs> if you will and so um, isn't it interesting though because uh, shortly after that the publication of that book which was in the early 70s 72 I think in the mid to later 70s was kind of a considered by some to be the golden age of anthropology with the discoveries of uh, of Australopithecus afarensis and Lucy and sort of the, the first real glimpse beyond going back um, uh, to the very beginnings of, of the emergence of hominin bipedalism, it was thought at that time. And uh, uh, so for the first time, we had much more complete uh, hip bones, the pelvis, we had uh, the, the thigh bones, the femora, the, we had knees, and so forth, and associated with uh, the crania of these australopithecines and the uh, the statements to the popular press were isn't this interesting from the waist up they look essentially like chimpanzees but from the waist down they look like little hairy humans <laughs> well wait a minute that was the very linchpin that napier proposed to negate or to reject the patterson gimlin film and yet it anticipated um, that sub, those subsequent discoveries that uh, bore out that otherwise inconceivable combination of traits. Isn't that interesting? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Well, let's talk about some of the other anatomy, so like the pelvis, for example, and um, and uh, mid uh, the, the 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 bent knee gait and that sort of thing of the PG film. Um, and now the the narrowing of the hips, um, it it, ha- it has to have something to do with um, center of gravity, I would imagine, for such a massive biped kind of. Otherwise, it'd be teeter tottering back and forth and whatnot. And does that also probably is where the uh, the more inlined um, inline trackways. Uh, the, the 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 lack of straddle in the trackways probably comes from I'm guessing is is the um, center of gravity issue. Um, let, let's address that and talk about that a little bit and and how that ties into like the bent knee gait as a shock absorber sort of thing and the high leg lift and the swing phase of the gait and things. Sure. Okay. So let's start with the pelvis then. Yeah, there's a lot there. I'm sorry I throw so much at you once, but I want oh, to yeah. make sure. Oh no, yeah. no, this is fine. We'll just work our way down the limb and. The, the pelvis has, has gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sort of misdirection, mis, misinformation. The, the tendency has always been to compare us to our closest neighbors and assume then that the intermediate taxa were somehow also intermediate in 
in anatomy. And so the chimp has this very modified pelvis with these high um, blades of the ilium, the, 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 you know, the, the hip bones, essentially, the, the, up on the ridges of the hips, not the hip joint. But um, in, in a chimp, they are elongated, tall, and uh, still very narrow, but they're very tall, and they face front to back so that the muscles, the gluteal muscles that attach on the back of those blades are acting simply as retractors of the hip, the extends and extenders of the hip. So when you're climbing up a tree or when you're walking, you know, on all fours, you don't worry about balance, then they, they work to draw the hip back, draw the thigh back as the hip is extended and you're walking forward. All right. So the thought was then that that had to be modified in order to become bipedal. Well, as it turns out now, uh, which it should have been self-evident and really was, but sometimes it just got lost. Chimps have been evolving (laughs) over the same period of time since the divergence from a last shared common ancestor, maybe in different ways, but they have been evolving and they have evolved these remarkable specializations for arm hanging. They've experienced a shortening of the lower back, the lumbar spine, and, and this elongation of these of these uh, hip bones, and uh, um, obviously the greater emphasis on the forelimbs, so their their forelimbs are actually longer than their hind limbs. And so, but now as we, as the fossil record, you have to remember that chimps and gorillas are themselves relic populations that, that do not reflect the totality of ape evolution. Um, we have over, well over a hundred different species of extinct ape that have been discovered in the past half century. And uh, they don't often get as much press, you know, as the human ancestors. But what one thing that has come out of that is that some of these also sort of dabbled in bipedalism, maybe not a fully committed bipedalism on the ground, but because they spent time climbing and standing and reaching overhead for resources, their bodies with that tailless torso and uh, had a modified, uh, more generalized pelvis that was less like a chimp um, than it was similar to our own. And so the, the emergence of the bipedal hominins that then committed to walking on the ground really probably really didn't have to change their pelvis all that much. Now, as far as narrowing, um, the only, the, the really hasn't been a, a trajectory of narrowing so much as it's, it's the lack of sexual dimorphism, the lack of differences between the genders that we see in humans, which is entirely the result of our big brains. A female pelvis has to have a, a, a broader outlet in order to accommodate a human infant with a relatively large brain by comparison to a, a, an ape, like a chimp or a gorilla. This is why some of the statements that were made about the PG film by the experts of the time are, are so inane and so silly in, in, in hindsight. They should have been recognized as such at the time, but one of the commentators made, made the remark, isn't it silly, you know, the hoaxers, 
it's clearly a, a, a man uh, in a fur suit. It walks like a man, but they've added breasts. So you've got this ridiculous combination of, of female and male, male features. Well, now, wait a minute. Again, the only reason a human female walks like a human female is because of the wider breadth of the hips to accommodate the large-brained infant. Sasquatch, as, we have, as we've just discussed earlier, have a small brain. They have a brain that's not much bigger than a chimps or gorillas. And so females wouldn't have wide hips. Females would have a pelvis that, that essentially looks just like a male Sasquatch pelvis. And so a female Sasquatch, like Patty, even though she sports breasts to, to uh, nurse her offspring, has a pelvis that doesn't look much different than her male counterpart would. And she would walk like a man. And this comes into you, you know, the next point you made. When the commitment to terrestrial bipedalism was made in order to help balance the torso over not three limbs or two limbs, but one at a time, there were some changes. That, that, more, that uh, pelvis, that shorter pelvis, not necessarily narrower, but shorter, the blades, instead of facing just front to back, curled around to the sides. So now the smaller, what we call the lesser gluteals, the gluteus minimus and medius, especially the medius, um, are on the sides. And so instead of pulling the leg back, the lower limb, the thigh, back, retracting it, they balance the torso over the support limb. You can test this out just next time you stand up and take a step or two. Put your hand down right on the side of your hip. And as you lift one leg, you'll feel the muscles on the opposite side, on the support limb, flex, keeping that pelvis and torso from dropping to the unsupported side. You know, like a drunken soldier. Or well, just think about the way a chimpanzee walks on two legs. That characteristic, and, and, and actors try to emulate that whenever they don a, an ape suit, uh, and it's that characteristic kind of arms out like a tightrope walker and swinging the torso back and forth uh, in a swaying motion over the alternating limbs in order to balance the pelvis or the uh, torso over the support limb. Anyway, so um, one of the ways to uh, address that, in addition to the reorganization of the pelvis, is to angle the thigh in towards the midline. So your base of support is already closer to the center of mass than, than otherwise. So when we walk, instead of a, a wide splayed uh, gait with our feet apart, we place, you know, it's not as, as extreme as a, as a model walking down a catwalk, you know, uh, with it, where they literally almost cross their feet over in front of the others. But, but it's closer to that. And you find, too, when you take on a heavy load, next time you're backpacking with a heavy backpack, notice the way you uh, modify your gait a little bit. And, and if you're at all experienced, you, you do this intentionally, whereas you do tend to walk a little more tightrope because you're bringing the center uh, or bringing your line or a, a point of support more directly under the center of mass. And you don't have to utilize the muscular effort quite as much to balance your pelvis and torso over that in any case. So um, then, then you talked about the compliant gait. Humans have adapted 
uh, or adopted uh, a manner of walking that maximizes the step length and uh, and takes advantage of uh, of that rigid uh, longitudinal relatively rigid longitudinal arch and so in uh, together with the elongation of our of our legs our lower extremities we reach out with a very extended limb and come down with a heel strike and then uh, transfer onto that that supporting foot but that that uh, extends our um, our step length and you know over a long period of walking that even if you've only gained a couple of inches you multiply that by hundreds of thousands of steps and you've reduced significantly the number of individual steps you've had to take to cover that that ground but as a result of that extended limb we have a bit of a jar when we, when uh, you know, jolt when when our heel strikes the ground, when it's called the heel strike, versus the toe off, and uh, and because of our arch, we have two points of peak pressure beneath the foot, one at the heel strike, and then as you know, the full foot is in contact, the heel comes up, and now the point of contact has shifted to the ball of the foot, to the metatarsal heads, because of that arch. And there's another peak pressure uh, point concentrated in that small surface area as we push off ultimately with our big toe. Well, you increase body mass considerably, and those peak plantar pressures are something to be avoided. And so one way is to not have an arch, which... Uh, differentially concentrates pressure under those limited points of contact and don't have a heel strike where you where you're in you know you're actively limiting um, the surface area to absorb all of that weight that and that force uh, you know that accelerating force through a, a small area of tissue so, walk in such a way that the whole foot comes in contact Okay, that's interesting because that's what I was going to be my next question, but you've already addressed it. Based on the footprint cast evidence, I'm not seeing a lot of really deep um, toe, or not, I mean, our heel impressions, which indicates to me, along with witness sighting reports of this sort of flapping sound that sometimes they hear with Sasquatches running through the area or across cement or something like that. Yeah, I've often thought that perhaps they come down rather flat footed as opposed to a heel strike because, you know, 500 pounds of weight coming down on a heel every single time would do a, a real number to their heel bones, I would imagine. Uh, interesting. Okay. Well, I was going to say, this is something that, that Krantz kind of explores in his book where he's talking about the, um, the, the noticeable um, breadth to length ratios that are distinct for Sasquatch, much greater than human. And he points out that when you um, allow for that greater breadth and the increased surface contact by having a flat foot, um, the, a surface area, you know, placing the foot more uh, flatly on the ground, you, your uh, pressure per unit area of the foot isn't much different than the, the theoretical isn't much different than what is observed for the human foot, which is, you know, right there at the tolerance levels of the, of the tissue of the skin and connective tissue, fatty tissue and, and bone. Uh, so, 
you can address the increased forces anatomically, but you can also address them behaviorally. And that's, that's what you were talking about with placing the foot um, more flatly initially instead of a, a decided heel strike, which, you, as you correctly point out, seems to be the evidence of that seems to be completely absent, largely absent from the fossil record or excuse me, the footprint track record. In addition, you can um, soak up some of that impact force with the tendons and ligaments in the joints of the ankle and the knee and the hip. And this is where the compliant or flexed jointed gait uh, comes into play. In the biomechanical literature, it's referred to kind of in in an informal sense as a groucho walk. Now, most of the younger generation don't even know who Groucho Marx is, let alone have having seen him on, on the movie screen. Which is a travesty, by the way. A, a huge, yeah, it's a sign of the downfall of our civilization, in my opinion, to not know who Groucho Marx is. <laughs> That's right. But Groucho Marx had this funny walk, and uh, you know he had this big uh, bristly uh, mustache and round glasses and a big cigar that you twiddle there, and, and he would lean way forward and walk with a bent at the waist and and on flexed uh hips and knees and uh and so anyway this is what's called a compliant gait and there have been uh, very systematic studies done using force plate um to collect data of uh, ground reaction forces to show that you can reduce the impact forces which are called ground reaction forces. The forces, the ground is pushing back against the, the force that you're imposing on it, just the way that, that description works, by, by upwards of 18, 20%. That's, that's pretty significant when you start talking about, you know, this, the magnitude of forces of a big 700-pound paddy walking across the sandbar, you know. So, um, so walking with a compliant gait, combined with the um, broader foot and ag- actually probably larger foot for, for the overall size. I mean, some people have looked at Patty and say their you know, feet look kind of, kind of oversized. Well, they probably, well, some of that is optical illusion due to the overexposure of the film, but, but there is something to be said for the um, length to stature ratio. In well, sat- they say that same. They say that same thing about Homo floresiensis about had had much larger feet than its stature indicated. That's right. Yeah. So, see, I think all of that uh, uh, the the unique human condition really didn't emerge until our skeletons remarkably lightened in in uh, in uh, weight and mass, and uh, and we went from an elongated heel that gave greater leverage to a very short heel length projecting behind the ankle joint for a speed lever. So a little bit of displacement of that proximal or that, uh, yeah, that proximal part of the ankle or the heel bone um, would translate into a very rapid uh, movement of the distal end, which is a, uh, an adaptation for running. We our our skeleton, our long legs, our you know a lot of the discussion about the changes in in uh, uh, the cranial base and in our proportions of upper extremity to lower extremity and and um, uh, you know just the more light the lightening the gracilization of 
the skeleton. These are adaptations for endurance, walking and running. And we're, we're quite different. Sasquatch has evolved in a very different way. I mean, it muscles its way up and down those mountainsides. And, uh, you know, it's probably capable of bursts of speed, uh, just like a gorilla or a chimp. A gorilla, a, I was just looking up the other day because someone was asking. The, uh, a silverback gorilla can attain bursts of speed up to 25 miles per hour, which is, that's uh, world-class sprinter speed. <laughs> but it can't sustain it, obviously, for a lot. And neither can a world-class sprinter sustain that for more than, you know, the 100-yard dash. But the uh, long-distance runners, marathon runners, don't run at that pace. And, and I don't think a Sasquatch would be capable either. It doesn't have those adaptations um, or a gorilla. But, uh, but Sasquatch would be much more capable than would a gorilla. And so, you know, feats of distance, an overnight trek across a, a gap between forest uh, fragments would be something that, you know, Sasquatch could undertake. I think that's probably why sometimes we get sign or sightings in in otherwise odd places is because there um, could be a, like Krantz uh, used to re- refer to rogue males who are striking out from their natal uh, territory. They've been forced out by the resident male, dominant male, and they have to find their own turf and their own females, attract their own females. And so sometimes they strike out uh, through less uh, desirable habitat in order to find a place of their own. Yeah, just kind of cook over that uh, terrain during the night when there are fewer eyes out there to see them and they feel safer under the cover of darkness. You know, uh, one of the things that um, you, uh, that has given me a, a greater appreciation of, ha- of just the muscle mass that Sasquatches must have is doing exactly what you mentioned, um, ex- which is experimenting about experimenting with my own gait while backpacking. You know, if I have like a 40 pound pack, you know, on my back, that's a significant addition to my own weight. And I do find myself leaning forward slightly. Um, and, and just for, you know, just for laughs, I kind of adopt the, the, the compliant gait. Um, and it sure makes a big difference on the impact, especially going downhill and to some degree up, but mostly downhill. But I'll tell you, I, I am sore in the morning. Um, all that, it's, it's just an incredible burden on my feeble little muscles. So sure. Exactly. Well, that's, and that's it. You, you, because you can no longer simply rely on the, the joint locking mechanisms or the passive, um, tension in the ligaments and joint capsules. Um, uh, the, the tendons can, um, store some elastic energy especially we see we one of the very human-like characteristics is this very well-developed achilles tendon the calcaneal tendon and it, it's kind of like it's not a, exactly like but but we compare it to a bungee cord the, that uh, that connective tissue within the way it's arranged within the tendon it allows for a little bit of stretch and there's some elastic tissue in there as well that helps it to rebound to its original shape but they have found you know that that these um um these tendons can return a significant fraction of the kinetic energy once they're loaded back into the system in in propulsion you know the 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 extreme example of this mechanism is the 
the big giant red kangaroos in Australia, which once they get up to speed, you know, they're basically springing on these, uh, relying on these, on these tendons and the counterbalance, the, the uh, cantilever rather, cantilever mechanism of their torso and tail, that stiff tail sticking back there over the hip. Each time they hit the ground, the tail tends to come down and the torso tends to come down, which loads all of the ligaments and tendons in the back, in the spine, and you know, big tendons uh, of the muscles for the tail. And, and then that tends to, uh, upon recoil, uh, lift the kangaroo up again. You know, and um, and so the the force necessary to generate the lift for that next step, that next spring, rather, is uh, is in part contributed by the recoil of these ligamentous structures. So the point is that it's interesting. You look at at uh, Patty, well, you look at a chimpanzee, and they have almost no real significant tendon, and what is there is a broad, much more what we call aponeurotic, a broad tendon um, that uh, spanning between the calf musculature and the heel. But if you look uh, uh, at Patty, she's kind of intermediate between a chimpanzee and a human. She has a massive uh, broad uh, tendon in the area. The heads of the gastrocnemius are, are discernible and they're long, but they're shorter than they are in a chimpanzee. Uh, they're a bit longer than they are in the human. And the length, well, when we say the length, I'm talking about the length of the fibers that, co- that, that constitute the two gastroc heads. So if you're relying on those muscles to kind of load the tendon, they don't need to be very long. The chimps are long because they move their ankle through such a huge range of motion compared to ours when they're climbing up and down trees. And so the, uh, the muscle fiber has to shorten through that range of motion. But if the range of motion is greatly restricted and the adaptation is to load the tendon um, so that when the forefoot hits the ground, see, it would otherwise stretch that tendon. Um, I almost ruptured my tendon just to show you the kind of the principle. You know, I was out, we were collecting firewood and, and, um, Rather than using axes, we were and saws. We were just gra- gathering up the the deadfall, and we're breaking it on rocks or s- leaning across something and stomping on it. Well, when you do that, you need to stomp <laughs> so that your ankle is right over the top, so that the force coming down through your leg goes straight through the. Well, like a dummy, I wasn't was being a little careless, and when I stomped, I caught the the branch with the tip, the end of my boot, out at my toes. And it, it flexed my foot up r- really forcefully. And, oh, man, it pulled my Achilles tendon. And I had a charley horse like you wouldn't believe. And I thought I had a volts. I mean, that's how you can uh, a volts tear, tear the tendon. Either it, either it uh, fails internally and the fibers slip. And then you get this big swollen contusion and, and uh, potential hematoma. Or it literally tears, it can pull it right free from the, the heel bone and uh, sometimes even tears some of the bone that those fibers are embedded within away from the heel bone. So I was limping for several days. I immediately put some 
ice on it. Thankfully, we had some ice in one of the ice chests, and I could uh, put some ice on it. But so, no martial arts classes in your background. It sounds well, like. not uh, yeah, not not. not <laughs> it just took that one moment of a of a misdirected uh, stomp, not aimed quite, placed quite properly, and man. <laughs> Well, you know, we have a lot. We have a lot more questions to. At least I have a lot more questions to ask. Um, I think Bubba's been more of a student today, and just like sitting back listening, to, as I, as I, as have I. Um, but why don't why don't we go ahead and uh, close uh, down the main session? We can go to the members se- section, and then um, I can ask you some of the other questions uh, that I have. Are you okay with that, Bobo? Yeah, I want to hear what the latest stuff's going on. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Why don't we go ahead and do that? We'll save that for the uh, member section. So um, everybody else out there listening, I really appreciate you listening. If you do want to hear us continue this conversation with Dr. Meldrum or continue a conversation with any of our guests every single week, you can become a member. Just go to bigfinbeyondpodcast.com and click the membership uh, link and it'll bring you right there. Um, And you get an extra maybe half hour or 45 minutes of conversation every single week. And I don't know, reviews are in. It seems to be a big hit. People are enjoying it. So Maybe you're missing out on something. So, Jeff, go ahead and stick around with us for a moment. And, uh, Bobo, why don't you close down this um, episode here? All right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us for episode 200. And our special guest today, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. We appreciate him showing up. Uh, We'll see you, I guess, next time at the 300th episode. Okay. Until then, everyone, thanks for joining us. And keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 